Good morning. I'm Don Blair, one of the elders here at Northfield, and it's my privilege to continue with you our journey through the, um, the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So if you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first six verses. Um, I think that's page 812 in your pew Bible. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a little story. Last Monday I was visiting briefly with a friend and she asked me um, what the passage was for this morning. And when I told her, she said, oh, you talked on that once before. And I said, I did? (laughs) I did not remember that at all. So I went into uh, my archives and uh, looked, and sure enough, in 2013, on a Wednesday evening, (laughs) I spoke on these verses. I was just blown away that she could remember that. I (laughs) had no idea. So I'll confess that I did... um, I did borrow the, the um, title, using the same title, but uh, this is not a repeat of that message. So, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together and just look together at your word this morning. Would you uh, show us yourself? Would you show us ourselves? And would you show us our Savior? And we'll thank you and give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's just a few verses, but traditionally I think these have been troublesome verses um, to many of us as to just how should they be interpreted. So this morning I'll share with you what the Holy Spirit has given me, and uh, we'll just trust that he'll bring some clarity to all of us. So our main point this morning, the take-home point, if you will, is to judge with right judgment. Perhaps many of you have heard that the first phrase of verse 1 is one of the most quoted verses of the Bible. And I did a little brief research on that, and, and indeed that's true. In fact, it is the number one most quoted verse by unbelievers, usually in the context of them being told that they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing, to which their response may be, 
you shouldn't judge. But is this really a correct interpretation of that verse, namely that we are commanded never to judge? I don't think so, and I'd like to explore that a bit this morning. No verse in the Bible stands alone. We must always consider how a verse or how several verses fit in with the rest of Scripture. That's called context. And obviously the context of these six verses is the Sermon on the Mount, which we're looking at in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so I want to look at these three chapters that contain this sermon, and we'll just take a quick uh, 30,000-foot view. Now, I realize this is my view. Others may see something different from this height, but what I'm going to say this morning is that Jesus, in in the Sermon on the Mount, is talking about rightness. And by that I mean what is the right thing to do or think or say in various everyday situations. In other words, what is the right way to live? Okay, so here we go. From 30,000 feet, chapter 5. The right ways to find happiness. Beatitudes. Right ways to think. Using the examples of murder and adultery, we learn that our thoughts can be just as bad as our actions. Right ways to respond. Be true to your word. Turn the other cheek. Chapter 6. Do your good works for the right reasons, using the examples of giving, fasting, and praying. Store up treasures in the right place, in heaven. Serve the right master, God, not wealth. Seek the right thing first, the kingdom of God. And chapter 7, judge rightly after you have judged yourself. Desire right things. Ask, seek, and find. Treat others rightly as you would treat yourself. Discern right behavior. Beware of false prophets. Look at the fruit. And finally, have the right foundation. Obey the words of Jesus. So in that context, let me suggest that these verses we're looking at this morning are telling us that judging is not prohibited, but it must be done in the right way. So let's use the following outline as we narrow our focus uh, for the rest of our time to this uh, text. So number one, are we prohibited from judging? Number two, if not, are there right ways to judge? And number three, so what? So first, are we prohibited from judging? I think you've probably gathered I've already given a no to that, a no answer to that, but let's look at it a little more closely, see how I've arrived at that. So if we look at the larger context of the New Testament, we find these verses. In John 7, 24, we read, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5.3, 1 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced a judgment on the one who did such a thing. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth regarding a man in their congregation who was living with his father's wife. 1 Corinthians 6.2 Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And we won't take the time to go into them, but several other passages also either state or imply that judging is necessary. Uh, for example, later in this chapter, we're going to see that we have to discern false prophets by judging their fruits. So then, the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the Bible contradict itself? Because Jesus says here, judge not. And in another place, he says, judge with right judgment. And Paul advocates judging in certain instances. So let me provide an answer to that question by saying that our starting point is crucial. And what do I mean by that? As an example, the first of our 10 doctrinal statements here at Northfield reads like this. We believe that God inspired the Bible and that it is God's complete and infallible recorded word to mankind. The operative words there are complete and infallible. And each one of you here who is a member has attested that you believe that statement to be true. So if that belief is our starting point, then the answer has to be that the Bible does not contradict itself because it would be impossible for a document that is complete and infallible to contradict itself. Given that, then any apparent contradiction we find is exactly that. It's apparent and it's not real. And that applies to every place in scripture where contradiction would appear to exist. So when we encounter an apparent contradiction, we either have to try to find an explanation or sometimes we may come to the conclusion that it's just one of those things that we cannot completely understand and we accept it as true anyway. But either way, there is no contradiction. So therefore, if we accept that we can have no contradictions, then one of these two passages, either judge not or judge with right judgment, must have a different interpretation. And so let me just suggest that the explanation here is that Jesus is not prohibiting all judging. One verse among many to support that is verse 5 of our text. We see there that we are to remove the speck in our brother's eye. So that will involve seeing the speck in the first place. That is, making a judgment. We just are not to do it 
until we can see clearly to do it. So if we can agree that verse 1 is not categorically prohibiting all judgment, let's move on to the second part of the outline, which is if judging is not prohibited, then are we given right ways to judge? So remembering that our, uh, remembering our 30,000 foot view of the Sermon on the Mount, that it's about the right ways to do things, then presumably we could conclude that judging can be done in a right way. And let's uh, spend a few minutes just looking at three right ways that we can judge. The first is that we are to examine ourselves. Looking at our text, we see in verse 2 that if we assume the position of a judge, then we will also become a defendant. Others will assume the position of being our judge. And likely that will not be pleasant because, as the text says, we will then be judged using the same standards that we have used on others. So my immediate response to that, and many of you probably have the same response, is, but I haven't done the thing that I'm pointing out in someone else. Well, the Bible says that I have, whether I recognize it or not. If we look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Okay, so I say, wait a minute. I've never committed murder. The Bible says I have. Remember what Jesus said about anger being the same as murder? Have I ever been angry? The thought is just as bad as the act. He said the same thing about adultery and lustful thoughts. But I've never stolen anything. Have I ever coveted? If being angry is equivalent to murder, then coveting might be considered equivalent to stealing. So if Romans 2.1 is true, and it is, then we have indeed practice the same things in one way or another which we tend to point out in others. Another familiar way of saying this is that we tend to point out in others the same faults that we have in ourselves. Oswald Chambers said it this way, and I quote, God looks not only at the act, he looks at the possibility. The reason we see hypocrisy and fraud and unreality in others is because they are all in our own hearts." End of quote. So one way to judge rightly is to examine ourselves, realize that we're just as guilty 
as the one we're judging, and then take steps to remove that log that's in our own eye. And you know, then an amazing thing might happen. When I get the log out of my own eye, I might see that there is in reality no speck in my brother's eye. If, however, I still see the speck, then verse 5 tells me that I am to help him to remove it. Another way to judge rightly is to be sure that we have good and complete information before making a judgment. In Proverbs 18.13, we read this, If one gives an answer before, before he hears, it is folly and shame. In other words, if we give an answer or make a judgment before we have all the information, we are fools. Having said that, I'm all too often a fool because I still often do it. And let me give you a, a simple little example, but I have to admit it's true of me. When I see someone driving what's usually considered to be a very expensive make of car, I immediately make the assumption that they are wealthy. But I've learned with experience that reasons, many other reasons other than wealth, often exist to explain why that person is driving that particular car. But when I make that assumption, I'm judging by appearance. I do that because I don't have all of the information. In addition, to judge with right judgment, the first half of John 7.24 says that we should not judge by appearances. But I submit to you that we all do that a lot of the time, probably more than we realize. We judge by appearances. But that's wrong, quite simply. It's wrong because we don't have all of the information. Usually the right thing to do then is don't make a judgment. If necessary, we could try to get more information, but that's not always possible. The third way to judge in a right way is to be sure that we are judging on the basis of what Scripture says and not on the basis of our opinion. Many of you might, may remember that one of the often repeated phrases of Billy Graham was, the Bible says because he wanted his listeners to be absolutely clear that his message was not just his opinion. And we would do well to do the same. If I'm judging people on the basis of things like the car they drive, the clothes they wear, the hairstyle they have, or the music they like, that's almost always going to be about my opinion versus theirs, and that is not right judgment. On the other hand, if someone is clearly violating scripture, and if we have opportunity to address that and point out the sin, then 
We should do that, and that's judging in a right way. One very common, um, clear violation of scripture that comes to my mind in that regard is unforgiveness and its resulting bitterness. If I become aware of someone who's struggling with bitterness, I might do well to point out what the Bible says about that. Then, if possible, and after examining myself to see if I harbor any unforgiveness, I should gently and lovingly try to help that person on his or her journey to find the freedom of forgiveness. And we can think of many other situations of that sort where someone is struggling with something that the Bible clearly says is sin and addressing that in a loving and a caring manner and with a willingness to help is right judgment. The opposite of that would be in areas of what are sometimes called uh, disputable things. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are not to judge in those areas. And we don't have time to look at those now, but uh, that can be part of your homework for the next week. You can look at Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 8 and see what the Bible does say about those things. So let's uh, move on to my third and final point, and some of you are breathing a sigh of relief at the word final. So what? You know, that's what we often call application or truth to life, and, and those are excellent terms, but I kind of like the term, so what? Um, because you could justifiably say to me, okay, Don, you've, you've made a good case for these verses not prohibiting judgment, and you put together uh, three very nice ways that we can judge rightly, but so what? How does that apply to me? What does that have to do with me? Well, you know, we can pretty quickly make some general applications. But are there really any specific situations in our lives where these verses might apply? I think we would all recognize that we're all, we are all in multiple relationships. They are a part of life in one way or another for all of us. So let me take a few minutes to look at four of those. So I'm going to start out by picking on you teens, continuing the theme that Matt has started. Uh, the teenage years, you know, they're really great, aren't they? Um, it's a time of great learning, although some of you may not consider it to be so great right now. You're gaining independence. You're enjoying the freedom of making some of your own decisions. You have lots of things, lots of fun things to do, and you have the energy to do them. You'll realize as you get older that's not always going to be the case. And you can eat prodigious amounts of food <laughs> and usually not gain weight. And I am learning that firsthand at my house right now. 
But it's not all rosy, is it? Teens can be very hard on each other in terms of making fun, bullying, and excluding. And if you're on the receiving end of that, your life can be pretty miserable. If you're on the giving end, however, let me ask you to consider this. Are you treating others on the basis of their appearance? I suggest that that's the case a lot of the time. Are you making the speck that's in the eyes of others into a log and you're not seeing the log that's in your own eye? You might be cool and well-dressed and good-looking and talented, but you're not perfect. Far from it. So let me ask you, if you're on the giving end of this kind of judging, could you examine yourself and break away from that? Could you befriend someone who's being made fun of or who's being excluded? Get to know him or her? Get past the appearances? You might find a neat new relationship you might find yourself on the outs with the cool crowd, but doing right is not always easy. Okay, parents. parents. Parenting certainly has its challenges, doesn't it? When your child has made an unwise choice, how do you handle it? We can scold, we can berate, we can punish in one way or another. All the while probably forgetting that he or she is ultimately a chip off the old block and an apple that's not falling far from the tree. Maybe this is a time to examine ourselves and ask where did he or she get the ideas that led to that choice. Might it not be a time for calm discussion and asking of questions to get past the appearances and the judging and get down to motives or fears or attitudes? Then perhaps helpful advice and correction can be given and received. Spouses, those of you who are married, we all know that living with someone day in and day out, inarguably the closest of all human relationships, can be challenging at best and downright destructive at worst. When disagreements do occur, do we return, routinely revert to wrong judging? That is, judging the motives and the character of the other person rather than examining ourselves first. I remember hearing someone say years ago that in any relationship and especially a marriage relationship, we all tend 
to try to meet our own needs and to judge the character of the other person. In reality, we should be doing it just the other way around. We should be seeking to meet the needs of the other person and judge our own character. And I would suggest that the most prevalent character flaw we each have in our marriages or in any relationship is selfishness. Combating selfishness is a hard task of self-examination and recognition of that huge log that's in our own eye. And finally, let's talk to all of us as members of the body of Christ. We are each one of us in relationship with every other member. Most of us are quite familiar with what God says about love and unity and behavior and tolerance. We know all that, but those things are a continuing challenge because of our humanity and our resulting sin. Thankfully, one of the strengths, I think, of our local body here at Northfield is the relationships that we have with each other. I know that many of you get together for meals, coffee, walks, runs, Bible studies, mentoring, and other activities. Our small group or our life group ministry continues to grow, and we're looking forward to that continuing to do so in the future. These things strengthen our relationships, and that's very good. But again, it's not all rosy, is it? We have challenges. I just can hardly stand her personality and the way she talks so much and dominates every conversation. I just can't agree with her views on music or his views on how we should observe the Lord's Day or his views on what's the best version of the Bible or on the clothes she sometimes wears or you plug in whatever it is that is annoying to you. And you know what I'm talking about. All those little things that are perhaps annoying, but they are certainly not worth judging wrongly over and damaging a relationship. Things that should cause us to examine ourselves, but that should not cause us to be a judge. So perhaps some of us can see ourselves in some of these situations or in other similar situations. And if so, my prayer is that we can discern how to apply these words of Jesus in our various situations. I think it really all boils down to loving and caring, loving God and loving others. Because when we are acting in love, we will recognize that judging is permitted and it's even necessary in certain situations. When we're acting in love, we'll seek to judge in the right ways, such as examining ourselves carefully 
before judging others and dealing with our issues first. When we are acting in love, we will seek for more information and not judge solely on appearances. And when we are acting in love, we will judge by biblical standards and not by our opinions. But how can we do that? How can we act in love? Well, we could not do it if God had not first loved us and given himself for us. Because of Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins and his resurrecting us to new life, we as believers have the Holy Spirit within us, empowering us to judge rightly and to love others. So, I'm done, and you might have noticed that I haven't dealt with verse 6. And I'm not going to. So my apologies to those of you who were looking forward to what I was going to say about that. It's a very difficult verse. Uh, it's, it spawns several different interpretations and applications. I did look into it a little bit, looked at some commentaries. And so I'll leave that to you, again, for more homework uh, and for your individual study and reflection. So I'm going to pray. The music team will be up and uh, close our service, after which you're all invited to lunch in the APR, uh, where we will have continued opportunities for relationships. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that it's clear. We're thankful that through your Holy Spirit we can, we can understand most of it. Thank you for the practical ways in which it just applies to our lives. And so we would just ask as we go forward from here that you would help us to, to be loving and caring, to judge if necessary, but to do it rightly. Yeah. And above all, to, um, to glorify you and to work on the relationships that we have with one another, that we can live together in, in unity and love. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.